welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron Johnson. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to talk about something cool regarding ecology, evolution, and natural history. You know, that really awesome area. And uh, this week, we've decided to discuss topics within the area of drugs, right? Drugs, biomedical industry, and all that fun stuff. Yep, yep, exactly. So, I don't know about you, but I had a topic in mind when I picked this theme. But overall, how did you find the research for this one? So, I'd say the research is easy because if you look throughout history, even in the modern era, pretty much every drug comes from something in nature. Yep. Or was synthesized from something, or now you can do it in a lab. Like, ranging from vaccines to anti-venoms uh advil yeah all comes from nature yeah i mean penicillin it's another great example penicillin there's so much history there yeah so i don't think this is really a hard topic true at least not to find something to find something good maybe that's another story right well i think i already had something good but i don't know about you uh is it my turn to go first or is it you this time yeah you're up oh i'm up all right so the thing about a lot of these chemicals that you're talking about that we turn into drugs is that they all, a lot of them come from plants, right? Oh, yeah. Plants are phenomenal at manufacturing all kinds of really complex chemical compounds that we would have a really, really difficult time producing ourselves, even with all the technology that we've developed. Absolutely. And that's really all a plant can do against a predator is make a poison. Or it's one of the few things they can do. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't say there are a few things, but it's something really effective that they can do. It's something against, a lot of them do for certain. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, a lot of these chemicals they produce have psychoactive effects, right? Because that kind of messes with the brains of whatever's trying to eat them. And then we, as humans, take these psychoactive chemicals, you know, extract them from the plants, and then turn them into drugs. Some of which are medicinally prescribed. Others are just taken for fun. Not so much. Right, right. But regardless of how we use them, they're used as a deterrent to potential predators. Um, because after all, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to make yourself addictive, highly edible, or both when you're trying to ensure your own survival. That is, unless you produce these effects in humans, in which case you will become a bumper crop that we will farm the shit out of. There is a small exception to this that I found that I had in mind when I came up with this topic, and that would be catnip. Because it's for cats? Kind of. I'll get into it. But the the effects of this particular plant are most well-known in cats. So, Nepeticataria, or catnip as most of us know it, is a plant in the mint family that is native to Asia, Europe, and parts of Africa. Eventually, it was imported to the Americas during colonial times, at least as far as humans are concerned. We have found medicinal uses for catnip. In humans, the leaves have kind of a sedative effect that can make you feel drowsy. So people have used it a lot to help them fall asleep. They make teas with it. It's a really useful plant that you can use to treat, you know, sleep issues, basically, at least in humans. However, the plant is perhaps best known for the effect that it produces in cats, not people, which is how it got its name. It is known to not only affect domestic cats, but also other feline species like lions, tigers, lynx, pumas, etc. And those species react pretty much in the same way that domestic cats do. So, 
as you may or may not know, depending on how much time you spend around cats, when cats are around catnip, they kind of go nuts. They paw at it, they roll around at it, they generally act like they're in this state of euphoria around it, and they have all this energy. This state lasts about 10 to 15 minutes for the cats before it wears off, and then there's actually a period of immunity that follows that that lasts about a half an hour. The closest approximation for a chemical that would affect people this way is marijuana. This is not to say that the two plants are alike or that the two reactions are the same, but it's an approximation. Like that state of euphoria that people feel when they're using marijuana is similar in some ways to the effect that cats have when they're around catnip. So can we substitute one for the other? No. Fez can't do a damn thing about catnip. No. No, you definitely cannot substitute one for another. They're very different plants and very different families. No, but with the effects. Again, no. I'll get into that. I'm just saying, like, the state of euphoria that that cats feel when they're on catnip is similar to the state of euphoria that people feel when they're on marijuana. But the pathways are different that cause those effects. So there's not a whole lot of similarity aside from the end product, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay. So the other thing, too, about catnip is that technically catnip isn't classified as a drug, but for the purposes of this episode, given how it affects cats and like the kind of psychoactive effects that it has, I felt it was still appropriate. So I'm going to roll with it, if that's all right with you. Oh, that works for me. All right. So... Catnip has this effect on cats because it binds to certain sensory receptors within the cat, which then triggers a response in the cat's olfactory bulb. This area then sends the signals to the amygdala and then the hypothalamus, which in turn trigger the cat's opioid pathways, producing that feeling of euphoria that I was talking about earlier. So the hypothalamus in particular is worth mentioning because it regulates neuroendocrine responses in the pituitary gland. These responses are activated when under the influence of catnip. In short, this means that the cats are acting like they're in heat or they're horny because those pathways are triggered by the catnip. So in a lot of ways, the chemicals in catnip kind of act like a sex pheromone for the cats. So it could be an aphrodisiac in people. There's a market for it. You know there is. Go to your nearest Petco if you're having some issues in the bedroom Clear out their whole stock. Only if you're starring in your local production of the classic hit musical Cats. Otherwise, I'm sorry. It's just not going to work the same way for you. So we watched Cats in college. We used to have shitty movie Sunday, and this was the last one we ever did. Everyone got kind of busy, but also... No, it wasn't. It was. Cats was the end. No, it wasn't. We watched Cats in the middle of our junior year. That's when it stopped. Oh, maybe I wasn't there for that. I don't remember. Anyway, Uh, sorry. Cats was the last one. Everyone kind of got burned out with it, like myself included. And of course, I pirated it. I didn't really want to watch it. And it got to the point where we were all so sick of this movie. No one wanted to finish it that every like 20 minutes, there'd be a dancing pinata that came across the screen and said, "Uh, you want a new iPhone 11 or something like that. And every time it came on, everyone would cheer because it meant the movie stopped. We no longer had to watch any more of that goddamn mess of a film. Oh, that was awful. That movie's terrible. Terrible. 
I'm still baffled that so many really, really good actors signed on to do it. They must have gotten paid so much money. I think they didn't know what they were going to end up looking like. That is probably also true. Anyway, getting back to the catnip itself, because of like the sexual pathways that it triggers, I don't really want to say that the effect of catnip is the same as the effect of marijuana, because that's not how marijuana works in people. This is also why catnip doesn't affect kittens, because kittens haven't reached full sexual maturity yet, so they don't have these pathways developed in their brain. And so when they are around catnip, it doesn't really do anything for them. Furthermore, female cats seem to be more affected in general by catnip. However, it's not like male cats are unaffected by the drug. It's just that female cats have a more pronounced effect. So they're just wired better to receive it, kind of. Yes, in a neurological sense. But male cats are also wired to receive it. It's just a little bit different. The chemical pathways aren't exactly the same. What's also interesting about catnip is that only about two-thirds of all domestic cats are affected, possibly due to genetic differences in the olfactory receptors of certain cats. And we don't really understand the evolutionary mechanism which has caused some cats to be affected, or most cats, that is, to be affected, whereas the remaining cats couldn't care less. So we don't really understand why that is. It's possible that domestic cats are kind of in the middle of, of some kind of evolutionary flux in this regard, but whatever the case, some cats just really don't care about it. I wonder if that's a trait we're breeding out of them. Because you said most wild cats experience this. Well, it's it's been documented in a lot of wild cats. The exact ratio hasn't been determined. It's not like someone has taken like a survey of all the lions out there in regards to the reaction to catnip. But we know that some lions react the same way as domestic cats when they're exposed to catnip. We see it in the in most feline species, but not all members of those species. It seems like a really easy research proposal, though. Just get one guy, a couple boxes of the stuff, and drive him around to some zoos. And stick his hands through the bar and shake at him, see if they like it. Yes and no, because domestic cats aren't necessarily comparable to wild cats, right? They experience different things. They've grown up under different conditions, especially if they were raised entirely in captivity. It's not like cats in zoos totally represent cats that are in the wild, right? Oh, yeah, but I mean, it's a lot easier to go to D.C. and see a lion than go on an African safari. True, but it's a lot less authentic. Well, you got me there. I'm thinking easy. <laughs> That's why I say just load up a U-Haul with the stuff, send out one guy with a lot of ambition. Yeah, but if catnip is really that effective for a lot of lions, I'm really sure you don't want to be that guy driving the U-Haul. <laughs> no, you're just going to have a whole swarm of cats coming after you? Yeah, you're being chased down by lions. Who wants that? <laughs> Poor guy. All we gave him was a mop to fend them off. You might as well dress up, dress up like a wildebeest and just send him running down the Serengeti. <laughs> He's probably not coming back. Yeah, <laughs> no chance. Anyway, so as far as the chemicals that cause this reaction, this whole process in uh, in the brains of cats is kickstarted by a chemical compound produced by the catnip plant called nepetalactone. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Don't ask me. So this particular chemical is really interesting, not only because it drives cats absolutely crazy, 
but also because it repels insects. So this makes it a very useful chemical for the plants to produce because those insects are some of their most dangerous predators. Oh, so it's the uh, the cat attracting thing is just a byproduct. That's not the f- primary function. Exactly. Exactly. Cats just kind of happen to react this way to a chemical that the plants produce as a way to get rid of bugs. Okay. I thought for some reason the cats were some, they played some role in like the pollination of the plant, but I guess not. That wouldn't be super reliable. It is thought that the insect repelling properties of nepetalactone are transferred to the cats when they roll around in the leaves of the catnip plant. So it's kind of like the cats are putting on bug spray. Oh, well, that is cool. Right? So they kind of get a little bit of it on them. As The the more they're exposed to this plant, the more that scent kind of covers them. And then as it covers them more, the more they repel insects, unless they have to deal with that later on. So as a result, some scientists think that cats initially developed an affinity for catnip, not because it produced a sense of euphoria, but because it repelled insects. So it's not really known whether initially cats had this reaction to nepetalactone or whether like this kind of pathway was developed as a result of the positive effects that catnip gives to cats. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So it would be the cats that had this affinity for it, let's say maybe hypothetically like a random mutation. They're like, oh, I love this stuff. They're Mm -hmm. getting less insects, less parasites on them. So they're going to no doubt perform better than the ones that are covered in them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the ones that are like addicted or addicted, quote unquote, to catnip do better because they repel insects more. So it's not really understood which kind of which came first, really, whether this, you know, euphoric drug for cats happened to produce, happened to also repel insects, or whether this insect repellent also happened to produce crazy brain-altering effects for a brief period of time. Um, But either way, as predators, insect pests make it much harder to stealthily track and capture prey. So any way you have of, you know, getting rid of those insects is really, really helpful. Like, anyone who's been on a fishing trip will understand how difficult it is to hold a rod and actually fish while you're getting bitten by mosquitoes. I was thinking you just, the uh, the antelopes would look up and just see like a cloud of flies slowly that too. moving towards them. And they knew that what it too. meant. We had the same issue at my high school with a kid that just stunk really bad. Flies just followed him around? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> He's like, There's probably one. He's like pig pen, but instead of dust flying off him, it's just flies. Every high school's got the stink, kid. There's gotta gotta be one. Yeah, but that stink kid probably feels really bad about it now. You don't need to talk about him like that. <laughs> I didn't do a name drop or anything. Good. That would have been terrible. Hey, and in a sense, we're remembering the stink kid. We're not remembering the kid that's more or less the same but doesn't stink, you know? Right, but I'm sure if you ask the stink kid now, he would prefer to not be remembered than to be remembered as the stink kid. Some people like the infamy. What can I say? And those people are really weird and also Pretty in the minority. Press good press. No, 
No, it's not. <laughs> I don't know where that statement came from, but it is not universally true. <sighs> anyway. So, what's also interesting about catnip is that, as it turns out, the affinity that cats have for catnip is also helpful for the plant. Because it turns out that when cats are rolling around in catnip and going crazy, it helps facilitate the release of nepetalactone, which helps the plants also repel insects. So, the plants produce nepetalactone, the cats help release it, and everyone stays bug-free. So, it's a win-win. Unless you're an insect. Yeah, unless you're an insect. And then it just sucks. Yeah, what's also interesting about this is that, based on recent research, it appears as though uh, the production of nepetalactone or similar compounds in the mint family was lost and then evolved again. So... Mint, the the mint plant that most of us know, and catnip are in the same general family. And their common ancestor had the ability to produce insect-repelling chemicals like nepetalactone. But it seems that over time, the branch that eventually evolved into modern catnip plants lost this ability and then regained it at some point. And we don't really know why. Based on what I've read, it seems possible that, for instance, its pollinators were being repelled by the chemicals it was producing. So it yeah. made sense to stop producing those chemicals for a time. And then eventually when... Yeah, it's really double-edged sword. Right. And then when they were being eaten by insects, they kind of moved back into producing insect-repelling compounds. So it's really interesting, this kind of love-hate relationship that plants have with a lot of insects. And how they want some of them around, but not all of them. And it's a really tricky balance that they have where they're trying to repel some and keep others around. Not so. to mention, you're going to be repelling insects at one stage that may be helpful in another. Example, caterpillars. Yes. Pretty much any of them. The yes. larvae almost are always herbivorous. And the adults are pretty much always pollinators. Right. Right. Exactly. So it's a really, really tricky, you know, it's a really tricky situation for a lot of plants. And that's one of the reasons that they've come up with a lot of really, really unique chemical compounds to kind of address this issue. And clearly that's happening with the catnip plant. Mm -hmm. So, uh, What I like about the catnip is it reminds me of two other very famous addictive drugs and people that are also pesticides, caffeine and nicotine. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Those plants didn't produce that just to make us happy. They did it, you know, to repel insects. But the catnip, it seems like it might be leaning into the cat thing, actually. Right, right. And people have cultivated catnip before because, like I said, it's a useful it's a useful chemical in terms of helping people sleep. And that's the effect that it has for most other mammals. Like, your dog isn't really going to go crazy around catnip. It's just going to kind of feel a little bit sleepy. That's the effect that it would have on most people. But cats, totally different. Completely different set of neurological pathways that are triggered by uh, nepetalactone. And so there's a totally different reaction. And it doesn't occur in really any other mammal groups. At least not that I found out. So it's really interesting that felines, for some reason, 
develop this weird affinity that no other mammals have. Anyway, that's pretty much my piece on the on catnip. Yeah, well, really cool. Yeah. Uh, a lot more I didn't know was going on there. More of a little sampler, I guess, than anything else. It was a bit short, but I felt like it was a really interesting thing to talk about, especially given like how cats help plants repel insects and how, insects, and how the plants help cats repel insects. Mm-hmm. And given that summer's coming up and people are going to want to be doing a lot of that, I felt like it was useful information. Yeah. And I feel like there's still a lot to be learned about the interaction between the two and the origins of it. Definitely. There's, yeah, there's a lot more to be discovered about how it evolved and what evolutionary mechanisms were uh, pushing on certain traits that were being favored or not favored at certain points in time. And I'd be really interested to hear exactly what's going on there. All right. Cool. Cool. So. All right. Now I'm up. So yep. I'm going to do the opposite of what you did, where you kind of started with the drug and then worked back until how it came about and the evolutionary relationships with it. I'm going to start with an animal, the ecology of it, and how someone discovered something incredible from it. All right, let's hear it. So I'm going to be talking about lugworms. Have you heard of these? Not at all. So it's basically a bloodworm, but from Europe. Okay. You, you know what a bloodworm is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lugworms are a smaller segmented marine worm. They reach between about 9 to 12 inches or 20 to 30 centimeters. They're about a pinkish red with a series of bristles slash gills along the length of its body. Again, if you've ever seen a uh, pretty much any marine worm, any bristle worm, any segmented one, they all have a very similar look. And this is the look. Okay. And of course, okay. there are multiple lugworm species. I'm going to be calling them all lugworms, just to keep it simple, but I'll be focusing on the blow lugworm specifically, or as it's known by its scientific name, Aranicola marina, which just translates roughly to marine sand dweller, which also describes them pretty well. That also describes a lot of other species. So with these in particular, your average person will probably never see these worms. Because they are burrowing worms, even though they're found all over the place. They're found along the Atlantic Ocean across Northwest Europe. I saw that you can find them all the way up to the Arctic and down to the Mediterranean. Very common on muddy or sandy shorelines. Wow, you're really on a burrowing sand kick, aren't you, with the last couple episodes? You got the you got the lugworms this episode. You got the gooey ducks last episode. So two? Yeah. <laughs> one more and it'll become a trend yeah <laughs> now i have to go out of my way to find something oh i hope you do so these worms construct kind of j or u-shaped burrow where water will kind of enter down through a small pit and it loops back around the lugworms will feed on various microorganisms and detritus found in the sand so what they'll do is they'll use their mucus to create a tube where most of the sand stays firm in place however the water movement will constantly be bringing in little bits of new sand on the opening. It'll be kind of pit-like. And these worms are just eating all the sand and stripping it of any digestible material. Of course, they can't digest the sand itself, so they just pass the sand through them, leaving these little piles of sand. So this is really what people see. They don't see the actual worms. They just see these weird sandy poo piles found in low tides. Oh, uh, okay. So- and then a it kind of sounds like somebody drunkenly going through their fridge and like just 
taking out all the leftovers and discarding all these random like t- dirty Tupperware containers all over the kitchen. Oh no, but they actually they have to eat it and pass it through. So I guess the best equivalent is if you have like no food at all, you just have all these empty containers and you're like eating the pizza boxes and hoping you can get like a little crumb off of it. And then you just pass the pizza box through you. Or you're just eating a whole bunch of corn. (laughs) Yeah, you're just eating a whole bunch of corn. You're not getting anything from that. And it'll look the same when you're done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, much better comparison. So, yeah, you're pretty much just going to find this little poop pile. And then maybe about a foot away or so, you'll see an indentation or little hole. And that's the entrance to the burrow. And you could find thousands of these poop piles. I found studies that estimate these lugworms can make about 20 to 30 percent of the benthic biomass, a.k.a. about 20 percent of all animals on a particular beach could be these worms. That's a lot. That's a significant chunk. In ideal habitats, another study found they could reach densities of 100 to 150 per square meter. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of worms. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and you wouldn't even notice them. Other than low tide, you'll see all these piles out, but it's just, you know. You wouldn't have that kind of density at a tapeworm convention. What the hell? (laughs) No, you wouldn't. It's insane how many of them there are. Whoa. And like I said, there's multiple species of these. And recent studies found that you can actually use their poo piles to tell different species of lugworms apart. Wait, really? So of the two main ones in Britain, the blow lugworm, which I'm discussing, and the black lugworm, which is a larger species but still very similar in appearance, you can tell which worm is buried based off the poo. The blow lugworms have a messier cast of several small coils kind of tossed about. Think more like a small servant of spaghetti. Whereas a black lugworm has a single large coil like the iconic poo emoji. Soft serve style. Oh, okay. All right. So somebody took the time to figure out what species was causing each of those weird poop piles in the bottom of the ocean. Hey, that's science for you. It really is. There's always something to be learned. Isn't it wonderful? So they may seem like a somewhat unimportant species because... Most people are really not going to encounter them, but they do play a vital role in their ecosystem. They're great at cycling nutrients. They're taking all this little kind of leftover bits on the sand. They're eating it, and they're kind of putting it back into the ecosystem. They're also really good at oxygenating sediment. And clearly it works out very well for them if they can reach those kinds of densities. Yes, huge densities. And of course, they are eaten by a wide variety of animals, many different fish at higher tides. Sometimes they'll just bite a tail off and the worm can grow it back. And many shorebirds eat them. Uh, yeah, okay. huge role there. So if you think about it, there's all these little leftover nutrients. The worm is eating them. You know, the worm is growing. And then that's a snack for a bird. Keeps everything cycling back into the ecosystem. Important little worms. Yeah, and for a lot of the shorebirds, I'm sure that those worms play a really large role in their in their migration. Yeah, I right? didn't look up into like what percent they played in their diets, but I'm willing to bet at certain times of the year it's huge. Yeah, it has to be. If if pretty much if a shorebird is eating any kind of food, um, there's a pretty good chance that it's an important food for its migrate for its migration because they basically spend half the year migrating. A lot of those species. Um. And so those stopover points where they refuel are really, really important for them, as 
we've discussed in a previous episode. Yeah, really got to load up on the lugworms then. Yep. Yep. So, of course, like all animals, another source of predation on these worms are humans. In particular, they are great for fishing. I had to mention this in here. That's what the lugworms are most famous for. Uh, Okay, that makes sense. And I also have to go on a little rant here about these as baits. So, over in Europe, fishermen catch these worms. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off right here. I love how calmly you introduce this rant. You're like, (laughs) I need to go into a bit of a rant here right now. I didn't know where to put it. If I should (laughs) lead with it, it should go at the end. It's going in this awkward transition period. (laughs) You got to live with it. (laughs) You're so so calm and monotone about how you're about to get really, really angry about fishing. And usually that only happens after something really, really... (laughs) like exciting or frustrating happens. Oh, well, I'm about to be angry. And Rustin, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. All right, well, go for it. So over in Europe, fishermen catch these worms pretty easily. I'd never seen these before. They have these devices called bait pumps. Have you seen these? No. It's basically just a bite pump, but without the tubing. So it's just like a steel nozzle. And what they do is they go to the entrances of lugworms because you can find them at the low tide pretty easily. They draw it up, so they get like a colander full of sand. They shoot it out, and if the worm's there, they pick it up and put it in a bucket. So it's kind of like the penis pump from Austin Powers that definitely wasn't his? Is that the first one? Yeah. I saw it, but it's been a long time. Oh, come on. You're killing me. It's not mine, baby. Honest. That was a good impression, though. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay. We'll keep it in there just for that. Thanks. <laughs> Somebody else will find that funny. That's a good joke. It's not my fault you haven't seen much of Austin Powers. So lugworms are hailed as some of the best baits for a wide variety of fish, but mainly cods. I found so many different websites saying cods, uh, different rigging, saying you should make a bait cocktail where you pair it with clam or squid. Basically, everyone Hmm. loves lugworms. There are thousands of videos on harvesting them on YouTube, and people get it done in just a minute. Here's my complaint. In the U.S., we have bloodworms as bait. Over in the U.K., they have lugworms. There's no debate who gets the short end of the stick here. It's us. How? Have you watched how you harvest bloodworms? Actually, no, I haven't. So, to put in perspective, it's been on, like, dirtiest jobs, like, a couple different times. Like, they do not make these easy-to-harvest burrows. They just dig around in the mud. In the mud, the lugworms, you can find them on the beach. No, no, no. You have to get like knee deep in the mud to get bloodworms. You have to go out there with a rake. And what you do is you rake the mud. And when you see it, you pick it up. So you're going to get very messy to harvest some. Yeah. And you'd have to wear gloves, too, because they they bite. Yes, that's the second thing. Bloodworms are not detritivores. They're carnivores. They have teeth and venom. Their bites hurt. I've never been bitten, but I really don't want to be. I don't like using them. I don't like using bait that I know can bite me. That's very fair. So would you ever use like a crawfish as bait? A cra- I don't know. Something about bloodworms just irks me. Like a crawfish, I know how to hold it. I just get it from behind, you know? It's easy enough. You could do the same thing with a bloodworm, though. I don't know. It's just so squirmy. All I have to do is grab the wrong end once and I'm in a world of pain. So would you ever use like leeches? You know, I can't say I'd be a huge fan of it. I don't know. Some about the squirminess, they just seem unpredictable to me. About bloodworms or 
both bloodworms and leeches. Or leeches. They could just reach around and suck on to me. All right, all right. But I guess the main thing is, besides bloodworms being, you know, these little biting demons, it's a career to harvest bloodworms. It's a dirty job, and there's a lot of money in it, and it's hard work. Props to the people that do. When I watch the videos for lugworms, I'm sure there are people that still harvest them, but that's something you could do on, like, an afternoon stroll. You know, just take your bait pump, you just get a couple for the bucket, and you don't have to worry about them biting into you. True. Also, I know that you really meant that it was a career because you made career a word with three syllables. You said that like career. Career. I really want to get the point across. Right. You put a lot of emphasis on that. Yeah. So that's my little rant. I just had to put it in the middle and also had to mention how important lugworms were for fishing. That's true. And I mean, honestly, having fished with bloodworms every now and then myself, they're expensive. And now I now I understand why. Yeah, no, watch a video on how they're harvested. And of course, there's laws, and you can only harvest in certain areas. I also read about how there's feuds between clam diggers and bloodworm diggers. Because the clam diggers, apparently they say the bloodworms stir up their territory. I'm probably oversimplifying it. That's just what I read. Don't Don't come after me on this. I'm sure there's a hot debate. Wait, wait, so like, like a turf war in Breaking Bad is going on between clam harvesters and bloodworm harvesters. I read a little bit that suggested there was up in the mud flats of Maine. The two groups are going at it. Wow. Who knew? That's that's crazy. Okay. Now it's time to actually discuss their medical applications. So what I like about using nature for research is you can look at certain behaviors or traits of animals and ask, how does this work? And this can lead to all sorts of amazing discoveries. And I already mentioned countless drugs on the market are discovered or synthesized from naturally occurring compounds. I would say the bulk of them. In the case of lugworms, this began with a question. So I mentioned how these worms can live in tidal areas where they can be out of the water for up to six hours at a time. So one scientist just asked the question, how does this work? How are they still able to breathe in conditions of extremely low oxygen because A, the water is receded, and B, they're deep in the sediment where there's not a lot of oxygen to begin with. And these worms don't have lungs, they have gills, they have to breathe oxygen that's from the water. Okay, yeah. So the guy that asked this question was Dr. Frank Zoll. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, he's based out of France. And he began his research on lugworms in the 90s and made a discovery that changed everything. So lugworms, of course, have hemoglobin the protein that binds oxygen for transport in our blood. However, where humans have hemoglobins that can hold about four oxygen molecules, lugworms can hold 156. What? Not only is this 40 times better, but the hemoglobin is in the blood itself, is not in the red blood cells. So it's in a solution. It's not part of a living cell. Whoa. So they can essentially store a huge amount of oxygen in their tissues for when they're unable to breathe. That's crazy. Another thing is these guys don't have antigens in their blood like people do. So, as you know, people have blood types A, B, AB, or O, and this can cause difficulties in donating blood. If you have an A and donate to B or vice versa, you'll get an immune response. You don't, it's the wrong antigens. Your body will register it as an uh, invader and attack it. Right. That's right. why O is the universal blood donor because it doesn't have any of these antigens. Okay. 
So I guess all what lugworm's blood is essentially an O type. You kind of get where I'm going with this. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, this worm blood can be used with people. Whoa. Yeah, that's this. This is insane. So Doctor Zal quit his job as a researcher and started up a biotech company called Hemarina. And they found a way to farm these worms and harvest the hemoglobin to create a sort of synthetic blood additive, which is on the market today known as Hemo2 Life. That's crazy. So what exact so what exactly does it do? Like this new blood additive? So it's not used as a blood replacement. What it's used for currently, what's approved for, is use in organ transplants. So with organ transplants, you have to transplant the organ so you have to you're taking it out you're moving it somewhere whatever happens to it right these organs are going to slowly die due to a lack of blood flow the organ needs oxygen they're essentially suffocating okay and that's where you give them the worm blood not the worm blood directly but it's a derived product from it okay so you're not just like you're not just taking a worm and just wringing it out directly onto like a heart or something like that. Now they've a uh, hemo two life is essentially they've harvested the hemoglobins and it is a additive to the organ solution. So they'll typically do some sort of saline solution to keep the organs in. And this is an additive to help keep it oxygenated. Okay. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. So a lack of oxygen for these organ transplants can cause the grafts to be rejected by the body. And that can cause you know, all sorts of complications later down the line. But when you have this additive and keeps it oxygenated and reduce that risk, you decrease the risk of rejection by the body. Huh. That's fascinating. It's all because someone decided to do a bunch of research on weird worms that were in sediment. Yeah. Someone just thought, eh, how does that work? I'll take a look at it. And that's how it all began. So it's been used in a variety of tests since. One study found that kidney transplants that use Hemo2 Life have both a quicker recovery time and improved renal function than traditional organ solutions. And additionally, the hemoglobin of these worms is so advanced, I already told you, 40 times better than humans, that Dr. Zoll claims that not only can the solution last for up to five years, where other solutions will last hours, but he could essentially provide Hemo2 Life for every organ transplant in France and still have over a ton left. What? It's just very efficient. It's not like we're, you know, going through all these worms to get it. You don't need that much. Yeah, I guess not. Wow. Yeah, so I will say that they're researching a variety of of drugs, and all of them are kind of utilizing this hemoglobin. I believe he talked about a what is it, some sort of bandages that can help oxygenate blood. And I believe their end goal is pretty clear. They want a synthetic human blood substitute. We don't have one yet, or at least not one that's been approved anywhere. And if you have a synthetic one, you can have a much longer shelf life than actual human blood. Again, think something like five years versus 40 days. Got it, got it. Okay, how long has this product been available? This is a fairly new product. And I actually went, oh, what was it, clinicaltrials.gov, and there's still a lot of ongoing studies with it. It's not approved in the U.S. yet as of December 2022. Okay. 
uh, it is only for the European Union. But there's still a lot of growth, and it's estimated that the next 10 to 20 years are where a lot of breakthroughs are going to be coming through. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's super cool. So uh, next time you're bleeding out and unable to call for help, you might want a doctor or a nurse to walk by, but you know who knows? Maybe a fisherman with a large bait bucket could be the next best thing. <laughs> I definitely would not have expected that one. Yeah. Yeah, and that's my piece. <sighs> that's awesome. Thanks. That was yeah, I, I never would have expected that the bloodworm substitute could one day save me from bleeding out. Yeah. Oh, uh another little bit of trivia. I didn't have a spot for it, but it was used in the first double face transplant. I didn't follow up on why it was a double face transplant. Well, because you see if i'm remembering the hit movie face off correctly <laughs> he didn't like the first one <laughs> when you face take off oh, when you take the face off of one person one person can't have two faces so it has to be a a double operation so to speak you know yeah i, I did follow up on that bit maybe the guy just wanted another on his back a la Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, yeah, you know, it'd be great for Halloween. And no other times of <laughs> yeah. year. Neighbors would get a real kick out of it exactly one time and then never again. Anyway, that's really cool. So what are you thinking about for, for the next episode? I had I had two, like, uh, two half ideas. One was we could do pets. Just there's a huge history of pets in general, you know, really shaped history if you think about it. If you brought it out to domestication, livestock, stuff like that. That was one idea. And another one would just be uh, really important research animals. Because there's a lot that people don't know about, i.e. the lugworm. Okay. Okay. I could see either of those. The one, the other idea that I was toying around with was... I, I had a couple that I was really thinking about that are kind of... That are adjacent, really. Um, those being, one, marshes. And two... Beaches. I think beaches might be an, a cool topic to do, given that uh, we're coming up on summer soon. It is approaching. And, uh, you know, people might want to know a little bit more about where they're going to be vacationing. But I'll tell you what, just to spike you, let's uh, put the beaches on the back burner just so I don't do another sand dwelling animal. No, <laughs> you got to keep it going. Yeah, we got a real trend going. How many got now? Two? You got to make it to five at least. <laughs> anyway, but all right. So, why don't we? Uh, why don't we? Why don't we do pets? Okay. Yeah, I I think I got some good for pets. All right. I can I can come up with something really cool there. We've done a lot of really interesting things with animal domestication. Oh yeah, there's something out there. Definitely, definitely. But uh, anyway, now that we've decided on that, uh, you want to take us out? I'll go right ahead. If you enjoy this episode, please give us a like and review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can send it to us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at souppotpodcast. All right, sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Bye.